For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we're going to be talking about the heart. And uh, this is a huge, huge subject in Scripture. There is, um, I think there was over 900 uses of the word heart in the Bible. And uh, we're not going to cover it all 900. Uh, most of them, but not all of them. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, we want to we wrap our hands around this concept and this image of the heart this morning. And so we're going to be going to a lots of different places in the Bible. I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and ready um, so you can maybe quickly turn to those passages. Um, and uh, although we'll be going lots of places, we'll be landing at just a few and spending a little bit more time in them um, but the, the goal here is to help us grow in our understanding of what it means to grow in Christ in particular through this metaphor of the heart. Now, have you ever noticed that you can be at the same place with a group of other people at the same moment, interacting with the very same phenomenon, and can each have a very different experience? So the question is, why do people respond differently? Why, why is it that people race past an accident that has just happened on the freeway, but others stop and help? There's something going on there, isn't there? Same phenomenon, same moment. One chooses to continue on, another one chooses to stop. Why do people argue and get angry at a police officer who has pulled them over for some driving violation? Why do others simply accept their fate? Same phenomenon, same situation, different response. Um, I enjoy flying. I enjoy going to the airport. I enjoy the whole dynamic of, of that kind of activity. And maybe it's because I don't do a lot of it, like some people do. Um, but it's always interesting to me being at airports because human nature is on display to see. And one of the things I find very, very interesting is people waiting at the gate. And when the person gets on you know, the loudspeaker and says, okay, um, you know, we'll be boarding in just you know, 10 minutes, what happens? People start getting up from their seats and maneuvering into position. Now, unless you're flying southwest or one of those you know, kind of everyone boards and finds your seat kind of airlines, you typically have your seat assignment, right? But there's something in you that is driving you to say, I've got to be first on that plane, right? Of course, you are in, you know, your boarding uh, letter is like, you know, double X, you know, something like that. You're like the last person to get on it. So you're just fighting to get to the front of the line because you're looking for that one little space to put your, your stuff in, I understand. But all these things are happening. Just watch people as they are, you know, sitting down talking. But as soon as that announcement is made, boom, they're maneuvering. And they're kind of slowly going and getting to those places. I know that because I is one of them, all right? And I think most of us are 
those kinds of people. Now, another, this is kind of a humorous phenomenon, but um, have you ever flown on a plane where you actually have to go down from the actual terminal and you get on a bus and then you go to the plane, you get out of the bus and you get on the plane? Now, what's funny about this one, I figured this one out, is that people rush when it's time to board. They rush to get through and to get on that bus. But what happens is they get on the bus and they get stuck in the back. So I've learned to be the last one. And so I get on that bus last, right next to the door, and I just kind of force my way in. And then when we get to the plane, guess what? The door opens, and who's the first off? All right, it's all about me. You know, you've got to think it through. But people do things in the same situation at the same moment, but they do it differently. Why? Let me kind of walk us through uh, another illustration here to kind of um, take us into this world. Imagine a family, a whole family with children at the grocery store shopping together. Sounds bad already, I understand, okay? Um, so they're going there to get some food, they're going to, you know, to fill their pantry, to do that kind of stuff, and, and mom is busily looking at all the products because she is under pressure. She's under pressure to make a healthy meal. She's under pressure to keep the cost down. She's under pressure to make a wise choice. And she has a coupon. And so she's weighing whether or not getting this product is worth more than this product. If you apply the coupon to that and you get the weight ratios figured out, she's doing the math and trying to do all this kind of stuff, right? You know what I'm talking about. Then the two children are simply being tugged along by mom in the grocery store, but they are not interested so much in all the stuff that mom is looking at. They just have in their mind two issues. Number one, who gets to sit in the cart? And so they're squabbling about who's going to sit in the cart. But beyond that, they want candy. Mom, can we get candy? Mom, when we, can, we get, can I get some gum? Mom, can I get? And they talk about whatever that thing might be. There's a teenage son. He's kind of cool. He's chill. And he's saying, Mom, can I just go to the magazine aisle while you shop? Just so I can hang around there? Really what he wants to do is get away from his crazy siblings, right? And Mom, Mom, can I get a monster? He says, Mom, come on. Can I get a monster? I want a monster. And Mom says, guess what? If you talk to me any more about that, I will be your monster. Okay? And then, of course, we can't forget about dad. Dad has had a long day at work. He knows that they have to go to the grocery store. He understands they need to get some good food at good prices, but he just wants to get home. He just wants to hurry up, get home, rest, and relax. He's tired. And so mom has finally finished getting what she needs, and the family rounds the corner to where the checkout counters are, and there's two lanes open and like 15 people in each lane. Now, they have to decide which lane to get into. And dad, being the leader and the one who's willing to make a decision, says, we're going to get in aisle two. And it's not because of he's looking around and measuring the speed of anything. He's just saying, I don't want to lose another space. So get in the line here. So they get in the line. Well, of course, you know what's going to happen. They hear the checkout person saying, 
you know, I need a price check in aisle such and such. And so this person comes and they start walking off all over, you know, and they're in like Contra Costa County now in the store and, you know, they're waiting to get back. And this whole time, by the time they get back, the other aisle, five people are already gone through. And now the wife is looking at the husband and saying, you made the decision to get in this aisle, right? All right. So you can see kind of what's going on. Now, um, when they were, when they, you know, when they're standing in line there, the people around them are starting to grumble and complain and what's going on, and they finally, over time, get to the place that they're second in line. But the person in front of them has this full cart. And, and uh, just about the time that, that person is putting their stuff on there, they open up two more aisles. But they pull the person behind them and everyone there to those two aisles. So now... You're excited that you are now second in place, but now you're frustrated and angry that you didn't get pulled over there, and this person has all this stuff. And so by the time this person's getting through, you know, four or five people have been going through that aisle, and you're like, you know, this is going to take all day. Now, I'm just trying to wrap a scenario around because, you know, everyone's probably experiencing pretty much the same thing in that store. Six people get through the checkout before they even get to put any of their items on the counter. And so mom is angry that she has had to wait for so long. The children are in a frenzy because they've been staring at the candy that they're being deprived of. The teenage son is still longing for a monster drink. Mom, can I have a monster drink? The father is numb with frustration, longing for the comforts of home. Same place, same moment, same phenomenon, different responses. The answer is why. Why is everyone responding differently? Well, the answer to that question is this. You cannot understand human beings without understanding their heart. And so the answer is this. We must have an awareness and an understanding of the nature of man, in particular what is going on in the heart of man, to understand why people respond the way they do. And so today we're going to kind of do a, do a walk through um, kind of what we call biblical theology, where you take a theme and you just kind of walk through the Bible. We're not going to cover everything, but just kind of lay it out, and then we're going to land at a couple of different places. And so this, this, uh, this morning, I want us to think about some key texts on the subject of the heart. First of all, this Genesis 1.26. And Genesis 1.26 tells us that man was created in the image of God. And that expression simply has two meanings. There is something about man as God's creation that is like God. There's something unique about us. We are not like other creatures. We're not like other animals. All right? And we can go as far as to say, you know, that we have the ability to, to think. We have the ability to worship. We have the ability to have deep relationships and, and, on, and so on. That's part of this, this likeness of God that has been reflected on us. It also means that we've been created to represent God. You don't see animals running around, says, thus says the Lord. Well, you may have had a donkey in the Bible, but that's not because that's the natural nature of that animal. Man is the one that does that. Because man has been created in the image of God. So we are God's creation. And then I, I want us then to think about this next passage when we think about the fall. Because man created, uh, God created man in his image, but of course we know that, that uh, uh, Adam and, and Eve fell. And uh, the result of that fall was that s- the sin nature was birthed. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, um, we have a description of the heart of created man apart from God. 
So Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's the first time you're going to find the word heart used in the Bible. The idea here is that we have this, this picture of man, this picture of God. The heart here is the core of man's being, a heart of evil thoughts, a heart of evil intentions. And we have the core of God's being described here as, as in this case, he's grieved that he created man. Now later after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, and this is what he says. This is Genesis 8, 21. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So I just want to summarize those two passages and just lay out a little bit of understanding of man's heart. It's characterized in this way, having intentions and thoughts in the heart that are only evil continually. Secondly, it's having evil intentions in the heart from man's youth. Okay? In other words, this has been going on nonstop. Man's heart is affected with these evil intentions and these evil thoughts. This is a picture of man's, we call, depraved heart. Man apart from God. Man in rebellion um, with God. So he's constantly thinking and intending evil things. Okay? Now, to pick it up, this picture again, we go to the Psalm, Psalm 51. Um, and here, this is David's uh, Psalm of Repentance. He pens this Psalm um, after he's been confronted with his lying, adultery, and murder. And after you know, he's, he's done that, and he's coming in contrition, he's coming in repentance. But beginning at verse 5, again, we have some fuller understanding of what is going on in the heart. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean that conception is a sinful act. That means that sin has passed down through birth, okay? Through conception. It's part of the nature that we're born with, all right? Verse 6, Behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So there's a lot of phrases used there to describe the heart. But this heart was, um, was defiled. It was unclean. It was, it was full of, uh, of, of iniquity. And here, God is going to give him cleansing. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's asking for. So David recognized that there was a problem with his heart, sinful heart, that was part of his created but now distorted nature that came through birth, that his evil heart um, could be clean, and that God desired truth and wisdom in the heart rather than evil thoughts and intentions. So we have these these kind of pictures now emerging of there's, there's this, this, this new heart, this different heart, this heart that has God at work in it, and you have this heart that is evil. It's only thinking evil continually. 
Then we go to Ezekiel chapter 4. That's what we began with. Um, no, Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, we began with this morning. And again, just the backdrop here. We fast forward. Israel now is in exile in Babylon. Jerusalem has just been um, overthrown in the context of what's going on because Ezekiel's book lasts a little while. Um, in his book, he prophesies Jesus' ruin. He also prophesies their restoration. We are in the restoration section of um, Ezekiel. And this is all, what he's about to say, is all based on his reputation, all based on his name. He is going to act. He's going to exercise grace to a people that do not deserve it. So this is what he says. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we have here, we have here now this, this heart of stone and we have this heart of flesh. This heart of stone is that hardened heart that has been hardened by sin and sinfulness or selfishness and stubbornness. Its orientation is evil and it's on self. You have then this heart of flesh, which is a heart that is not like stone. It is a heart that is moldable and pliable and teachable and um, can be instructed and can be guided. Right? It's willing to listen to, to that kind of instruction. So the evil heart of stone is replaced by this this, this nature now that is oriented to God. This is a radical change in the heart of man that is the result of God's grace. When Jesus talks about this, he talks about it as being born again, John chapter 3. The Apostle Paul um, then talks about it as new creation. This would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Listen to what it says. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. What's the old? In the picture, if you look back to that heart passage, this heart of stone. Behold, the new has come. So there's this new nature. There's this old nature that's hardened, and there's this new nature that is soft and pliable and moldable. Only God can do that. Only God can, can change a heart like that. So friends, this is truly something to celebrate. If you are one of God's children, he took your heart of stone and replaced your heart with a heart of flesh, which is your new nature, and your nature now is oriented to God. In doing that, he took you from the place where you were in bondage, under the power of sin, and now places you in the context where sin is still present, but you are no longer under the sin's bondage and power. You are free to not sin. Now, that's a huge change. So there's this hard heart, and there's this soft heart, heart of flesh. Then, um, we'll talk now about Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 in Ephesians 1.18. So this new nature, this is where we kind of move on a little bit more. This new nature, although cleansed and pure... Because of sin that we bring into our walk with Christ and because of sin that we give into, though we are Christ, and let's just talk about this a little bit here, when you and I 
you know, came to the cross, we came to the gospel, we embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, we stepped through that threshold into new life in Christ, we also came in carrying all these strands of behaviors and attitudes. Our heart has been changed, radically changed, but we still have these habits of behavior, these habits of thinking, these, these orientations that are not in conformity to the gospel. That's why you still lie. That's why you still have thoughts that are impure. That's why you still have some of those old habits. Sometimes, uh, at that point of salvation, things radically change in such a way that affect your immediate habits. At other times, you realize, you know what, I'm still suffering and struggling with the, these things that are carrying over into my Christian walk. And so now your Christian walk, your pursuit toward Christ-likeness, is this process of identifying those sins. Seeing what God says about them, recognizing you're in Christ, you're a new creature created in Christ Jesus, but part of your job now is to see that that sin is eradicated. It's paid for, but it needs to be rooted out and replaced with Christ-honoring behavior, Christ-honoring thinking. That's all part of your pursuit in Christ-likeness. That's the put-off and the put-on that is talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. Okay? Now, just trying to give a picture here. So this new, nart, this new heart is tainted with sin that we bring into it either by virtue of the habits that we have had or by virtue of the fact that sin that we give into um, since we have this, this new heart. And so this heart then is defiled. It struggles to see God and his word clearly. It is distorted by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The point is, you and I can't. There's only one person that can understand our heart, and that's God. And the only way that we can understand what God knows is that God reveals the condition of our heart by opening up His Word and allowing His Word to be that scalpel, so to speak, that is doing surgery on our heart. So we go to the Word of God. It is like a mirror that shows us our sin God is revealing to us our sin. Without the mirror of the Word of God, we wouldn't see our sin. We wouldn't know it's sin. And so he graces us with that. And so the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian church. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 and following. This is, again, just beautiful truth for us. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And this is what God does. He, he, he breathes this kind of light into our hearts. He opens our eyes. He turns the switch on. That's all part of regeneration. That's all part of conversion. So now we can see we can see truly what is sin. We can see what God sees in our heart. But it continues on. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So the fact that God reveals our sin doesn't mean like, oh no, this is the end. I've lost my salvation. No, the fact that he shows me my sin reminds me also of the fact that I have hope in my salvation. He's not going to change his relationship with me, my status with him. I stand on the certainty of heaven, but now he is calling me to see my sin and to make progress toward being like Christ. So that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
Well, are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. And he's just talking there about all these riches in Christ Jesus. The riches of the gospel being applied to our lives. Okay? So, uh, we have this, this uh, incredible picture then of these, these seven things here. These seven passages in particular about what God is doing. You see the kind of development of it as we go through the Bible. But there are these two hearts. A heart that is not oriented toward God. It is cold. It is stone. It is hard. It is sinful. It is stubborn. It is selfish. And you have this heart that is created as a result of God's intervention in my life. And he creates a heart that is a heart of flesh. It's pliable. It's teachable. It's moldable. And it's all a result of his activity in me. He opens the eyes of my heart. He allows me to see what needs to be seen. He does heart surgery with the word of God on my heart because he's pushing me to be like his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is very, very honest and plain about the sin that I have in my life because God wants me to make progress in my growth toward Christ-likeness. So, having seen that kind of development, let's now ask the question, what is the heart? What is the heart? And let's be a little bit more specific here. The Bible uses the heart to describe the inner person. The Bible divides the heart into two parts, the inner and the outer being. Now, there are some who would say that it divides it into three parts. That does not come from scriptural teaching, but that comes from the teaching of philosophy from many years ago, imposed on scripture. Right? There are two parts. There's the material, the outer person, or your physical self. The body you have right now is a temporary suit, so to speak and will be replaced, or we might want to say re, kind of regenerated, so to speak, in a glorified body that will be your permanent tent. That is the material. There's this immaterial, though, um, that is this inner person, which is your spiritual self. It is who you are. We say to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. We recognize you're not with your body, you're present with the Lord. That, that entity is who you are. It is, might want to say, the real you apart from that physical body. And there are a number of synonyms that are used to describe that immaterial part. Spirit, soul, mind, will, conscience, hidden person, inner self. There are more that are used to describe that. But these are all, I want to say, if you had the heart, these are all aspects that are part of the heart. The heart is at work, and, and sometimes these words are used kind of like as straight synonyms. Sometimes they're used to describe maybe a certain aspect of the activity of the heart. Like, for example, talking about the mind would be the, the, the arena of the heart where there is a cognitive thought process that is taking place. So it does describe some of these different, different capacities, but you take it all together, the heart encompasses that, that arena. So these, these other terms do not describe something different from the heart. Rather, they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. So the heart is the real you, your being, the essence or the essential core of who you are. Now, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the outer appearance, don't we? 
And as soon as I say that, all of you who have grown up in church are thinking about one passage in Scripture, right? What is it? David, right? What What does Scripture say about David and his outward appearance? Don't look on the outward appearance, what? Look on the heart, all right? So there's this dynamic where we are naturally, understandably, purposely, and rightfully concerned about our bodies, our outward appearance, what happens to our bodies. I don't think, you know, we we don't care about walking in the street and getting hit by a car. We care about our physical bodies, but we can put some inordinate attention in our bodies that is unhealthy. God is concerned with the inner man. He's concerned with the heart. Now, certainly the heart and the body function together, and that's why in this picture here, you have the heart inside the body. The heart is that place that that works into the body, through the body. So this inner man interacts with the body, but fleshes out its ideas, its thoughts through that body. Now, um, as we recognize the heart, as we see the heart, as we are digging deeper into our awareness and the knowledge of the heart, we're not just simply um, you know, saying, you know, I, I want to know someone. Getting to know someone doesn't necessarily mean that I'm looking at their chin, I'm looking at their hair, and I'm looking at their, you know, their feet, and you know, they're, they're like hobbits or something like that. That's not, that's not the knowledge that we're really talking about. When you're talking about, hey, I, I get to know someone, you're talking about something that is immaterial that is going on. There's a connection that is there. How the person thinks, what they want, what makes them happy, what drives them. So the heart then is this, this new you. It's that, that new that has come because the old has passed away. And so we're going to just land ourselves now in a couple of passages of Scripture that we want to mine with a little bit more of attention and uh, ask ourselves, what is it that God wants to teach us about the nature of our heart and how we are to grow and some things basically we need to recognize about our heart that will have some implications for us. So the first thing then is the heart and what I'm calling roots, or the heart and the tree. The heart and trees. This is Luke chapter 6. This is the passage that we read for today. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. So you have these two different trees again. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are the grapes picked from a bramble bush. Anyone here have an orange tree in their yard? Anyone have a lemon tree in their yard? All right, one there, okay. Anyone have a fig tree? You were waiting for me to say that, okay. Good. Anyone have an um, apricot tree? I do too. I feel bad for you. Because there's shoots like going all over the place in my house that are just all over the place. It's, it's out of control. Um, but listen, your fig tree will always produce figs. Your apricot tree will always produce apricots. Your lemon tree will always produce lemons. Well, good lemons, right? Not lemons in the bad sense. My orange tree will produce oranges, right? Because that's the nature of that tree. It is an orange tree. That's the, that's the image here. You've got a tree that has a nature, and that tree that has a nature is going to produce fruit that is like the nature of the tree. All right? The good person, verse 45, out of the good treasure of his heart produces what? Good. Now, this is not good person in the sense of 
just simply morally good. This is the nature of a person. We are good in God's eyes. We have been reconciled to him. We've been restored to him, okay? And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of what? The heart, the mouth speaks. So he's talking here about the heart. He's given us an awareness of the nature and the makeup of the heart. So often, when we look at someone, we see their fruit. We see someone who may be angry or sad or lazy or is a glutton or fearful or selfish or guilty. But these may not be the real issue. So when we're talking about growing in Christ and you're trying to help someone, you see certain fruit. You, that fruit, if you just focus on that fruit, you may not be dealing with the real issue at all. Because fruit can happen as a result of different core issues, you might want to say. What this passage is telling us is that there is something deeper in man that we need to pay attention to. There's something more central that we need to discover and to seek to understand. There is something at the root that produces the kind of fruit that we see. And the fruit that is produced in the life is the result of the orientation of the heart. It's the result of the nature of that heart. So here's the analogy. There's a tree and it's bearing fruit. This fruit is, um, is growing or is produced by the nourishment that it gets from the root or from that tree, you might say. The fruit is a direct result of that tree and of its roots. I mean, it's a very simple analogy. But it's the nature of that tree that determines its, its fruit. So, if you are a child of God, what is your nature? Right? It's, you're Christ-like. You're created in His image. You have created, been created for a purpose. You are pursuing Christ-likeness, all right? You now are no longer stuck in bondage to sin. You have the ability to be free from that bondage. Okay? You have a new orientation. Um, so if your behavior, if your thoughts, if the fruit that people see doesn't measure what you say you are, there is a problem. There is a heart issue. Okay? So, what is in your heart that will bear fruit and how you think? Or what, what, what is in your heart will bear fruit in how you think, how you feel, and how you behave? So what happens in the heart ultimately is the reason why you respond a certain way. Okay? So when that dad is, you know, is at the counter with his wife and he, all he wants to do is to go home because he's tired, that any behavior that happens is a result of behavior that already takes place in the heart. Let me explain it a little bit more, and I think you'll understand this. Um, this is probably most clearly seen if you've been around someone who's intoxicated. What happens when someone starts you know, indulging in alcoholic beverages? Typically what happens is their mouth is loosened. right? And what's, what's going on in the heart then is no longer restrained because the alcohol loosens the mouth and the mouth then begins to pour out stuff that the next day they're horrified that they even said. Okay? It's there. The thought process is there. But it's unrestrained and it's loosened by that alcohol. This also happens um, uh, at times when we are angry. 
you've been thinking about something, you've been, you, you may not know the whole picture, but you think you do, and so you see that person and you're angry and you just want to give them a piece of your mind. And you, you talk to them and they say hello, and well, how do they say hello to me like that? I can't believe they did that, and it just gets worse. And all of a sudden, you've risen to a level in your anger where you're no longer maybe restrained with what you're going to say, and it's just there ready to pour out. And then you say it, whatever it is. It was there in your heart first before you even spoke it. Right? It's the heart that pours out these things. Now, that's why we have to be careful what we are dwelling on in our heart. What we're focusing on, what we're nurturing in our heart. So what is going on in the root ultimately produces the fruit, how you think, what you love and adore, and how you behave. That's the first picture that we need to see here about the nature of the heart. Secondly, the heart and idolatry. Um, Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, again, in Ezekiel, talking here about the destruction of Israel and why. Um, and uh, here is what um, God says through Ezekiel, beginning at verse 1. And certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes to the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the, the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. So we have this idea of idolatry. We have this idea of hearts. And so what's going on here is this. There is, there's a direct relationship, get this, between the heart of man and what he worships. Your heart, you have been created differently than every other creature in that you have been created to worship. The question is, what do you worship? Someone, something, right? So an idol is anything that man worships apart from God. This is why the second commandment is given. You shall have no other gods, little g, before me. Because God is a jealous God and he is offended when man worships anything, creation or created, uh, a created image other than himself. Interestingly enough, idolatry is probably the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. In particular because in the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel just had so much difficulty and trouble with idolatry. You remember, you remember as they were in the wilderness and Moses was gone, he was gone too long, and so they all decided, you know, Moses, he must have died, and so we have to do something. And so they gathered together all their, all their gold and jewelry and they melted it down and created this golden calf under the leadership of Aaron, the priest. And they began to worship this calf. And their behavior began to change. Lewd, sensual, sinful behavior. And then they began to attribute their flight from Egypt to this golden calf that they created. This is pure idolatry. And how quickly Israel could move from worshiping God to being followers 
of an idol that they themselves have created. And then this continues on through Judges and Samuel and Kings and the Prophets and the Psalms. This battle with idolatry is constantly on display. Idolatry is when we make someone or something other than God our primary focus or goal. In the New Testament, in particular James 4, the idea of idolatry is used or talked about in, in, in the word kind of desire, um, but kind of a lust, a, a sinful desire. In Romans 1, this is what is known as the great exchange. Listen to Romans 1.25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. So we're just kind of walking through here and understanding there is idolatry that we see throughout Scripture, but it's, it's connected to the heart of man. These are idols now that man has bowed down to, physical idols. But as we get to Ezekiel chapter 14, we understand these are idols that aren't just physical. These are idols now that are taking place in the heart. So idolatry isn't something that you're simply bowing down to some, some physical item. It is also bowing down in your heart to some idea or something. It could be, I want to be popular. It could be, I want to be successful. It could be this goal, this pursuit to make money. It could be the American dream. It could be to marry that one person. It could be, I just wish my husband would do fill in the blank, or I wish my wife would, and you're worshiping that idea, and it's what drives you, and you're bowing down to it. These are all idols of the heart. And friends, one of the things that we need to be able to do is to be able to discern the idols that we have in our hearts that we are worshiping, because what happens is if you're bowing down to a certain idol in the heart, that is going to produce, or it's going to reveal, or it's going to actually result, I should say, in fruit. So when you see that fruit, you want to go back to the heart and you want to do some heart surgery to determine what is actually there. So if we habitually sin in order to get something, or if we habitually sin because we cannot have something, we are worshiping an idol in our hearts. So an idol is also anything that we consistently make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. When we worship an idol, we give our lives to it rather than to God. And it's so subtle, friends. It's so subtle. We can be bowing down to an idol and at the same time thinking that we're bowing down to God. And we're deceived by that idolatry that we are actually worshiping something other than God. And this all takes place, friends, in the arena of our hearts. Um, I think it was Luther said, the heart is a factory that produces idols to be worshipped. Your heart is just constantly saying, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. I deserve this. I should have this. This is my right. This is, this is for me because I should have it. And my heart is always saying, I need this. When you're hungry, what is your body saying to you? Feed me. And that message then goes to your heart, and your heart says what? Am I going to listen to my body? You say, well, okay. But your body might say, 
I want a third portion of chocolate ice cream. And your heart says, well, wait a second here. You've already had plenty of ice cream. Why do you want more? Because I want it. I want it. I understand that problem. Okay? So my, there's, the body is kind of working on the heart, but the heart ultimately is the arena that decides what's going to happen. And I have to ask myself, what am I worshiping? So that's the heart and idols. Now let's look at what I'm calling the heart and treasure. The heart and treasure. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your what heart be also. So let's just think again. The question is, where is your treasure? It, it is, what is your treasure? It is that which we long for. It's what we love. It's what we love to show others. It's what we value the most. Yesterday, I was at Peter's house. I couldn't help but walking up his driveway and seeing something that I know he loves. Anyone know what it is? His motorcycle, right? Now, I don't want to put Peter on the spot, but that's a hobby. That's a joy. He enjoys that. And there's nothing wrong with having hobbies or certain pursuits. But it can be an idol. I like soccer. I enjoy soccer. I enjoy reading about soccer. I enjoy watching soccer. But it can become an idol for me. It can be a treasure for me. It can be what I value more than God. So let me ask you a question. What is it that you want other people to know about? What is it that you are, you are just saying, well, this is the most important thing in my life, or these are the most important things in my life? And we could have a whole bunch of them. Imagine your heart being a treasure chest. And I'm saying, well, I'm going to put this in here. I'm going to put this in here. And we would say, well, it's family. It's retirement. It's stuff that I've worked on. And you can just fill it in with stuff. Now, is there, is there, does God say, you know what? You need to take care of your family. Was that? Yeah, in so many words he does, right? He just say, provide for them. I mean, have an income. Yeah. Have a home. Yeah. Ha, you know, have a, me, a vehicle. Yeah. All those things are important. All those things are good. But the question is, do they rise above valuing Christ? Valuing what Christ says. So let's just look now. There's treasures on the earth. What does it tell us here about these treasures on the earth? They are delights that are empty, temporary, and won't last. They can be vehicles, cabins, computers, sports trophies, money, jewelry, clothing, books, add whatever you want to fill into that blank. Earthly treasures will remain on earth. Moths will eat clothing. Rust destroys and decays. Thieves steal. The whole point here is this. These earthly treasures are empty, they're temporary, and they decay. You will not and you cannot take them to heaven with you. Okay? Then there are these treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. These heavenly treasures are the many promises of God, the rewards of faithfulness, the riches that we have because of the gospel. They're not tangible, but they are spiritual. Psalm 
37.4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And what happens when we read that passage, we're like, oh yeah, I, I want this. I want to claim this verse. God is going to give me the desires of my heart. And what God is doing is he's clarifying priorities and what is important to us because he says, delight yourself in what? In the Lord. So if you delight yourself in the Lord, that means that you're putting him in first place. That means you're seeing your life through the lens of what he desires in your life so that when you have a family, when you're making money, when you have a job, when you have your hobbies or things like that, you are able to steward them in a way that glorifies him and use them in a way that builds his kingdom. Because you're delighting yourself in the Lord. When you delight yourself in the Lord, guess what? You become conformed to his will and your desires now become his desires. I should say, his desires for you become your desires. You don't kind of walk into this verse and say, well, I want this. Oh, I'm going to claim this verse and I'm going to go on my life doing what I want. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying... I begin by having my orientation to God. I delight in Him. He fashions and shapes my heart in such a way that now I have new, fresh desires that are in conformity to His will. Which means now that the things I treasure are going to be the things that He treasures, that He desires for me. Now, let's just kind of bring this down to a close. Heart theology. Let's just kind of, what does it mean to grow? How is this, this, this image used? And we're just kind of summarize what we've talked about, but just kind of summarize it in a number of different points, okay? Now remember, let's just pause here. Remember that growth, as revealed in God's word, is an ongoing process. There is a moment when you have been declared righteous. That is the moment of your salvation. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That means that you are now standing under the umbrella, so to speak, of Christ and his righteousness so that when God the Father looks down, he sees you through um, the garments of Christ that you are pure and you are covered by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Okay, It's not what you have done for yourself. You are standing still submissive and humbly before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an ongoing process then of growth because now... I am to be working to be what I am in Christ already, but to be like him now as I pursue. So I'm, I'm pursuing Christ, growing, getting stronger, knowing him more, developing in my walk um, over time. Having said that then, how is this heart metaphor going to help us? So these are all things that I'm saying we need to be aware of. What I, mean, what I mean by aware of is not only think them through, but also beginning to apply them in my life, okay? Number one. Question, am I growing in my awareness of who I am in Christ? In other words, do I have an honest understanding of my nature? How it works? What's going on in my heart? Do I understand this new birth, this regeneration? Do I understand that this new heart is no longer or my heart is no longer under the bondage of sin because of this new heart. I am now free in Christ to not sin. That doesn't mean then that I'm not going to be struggling with sin. What it means is I don't have to stay in bondage to that sin because he's freed me. Okay? But I do sin. Everyone agree with that? Okay? 
And because of my ongoing sinful habits and thinking, I still sin. But I am in a hope-filled, ongoing war with sin present in my life. I'm in a hope-filled, ongoing war with sin present in my life. I have the confidence, if you're a child of God, you and I have the confidence that one day, either by virtue of the rapture or by virtue of death, we're going to stand in the presence of God and we will be complete at that point in time. We will be removed from this presence of sin. Okay? But until then, there is this ongoing battle and fight and war with sin. The question is, am I going to allow sin to once again put me in bondage even though I don't have to be, or am I going to grow and remove that sin and replace it with the kind of garments that Jesus has for me, all right? Am I aware of who I am in Christ? And friends, that is an ongoing life pursuit to become more and more aware of who you are in Christ. Secondly, am I growing in my awareness that the arena of my growth in Christ is the arena of the heart, okay? So again, You don't measure your growth in Christ by, well, I read my Bible today, I prayed today, I attended church today, which are all good disciplines, but I I measure my walk with Christ on something that is much more biblical, fleshing out, um, and and has process and has an awareness and is, is revealed here in Scripture. I am looking at my heart as the arena that needs to be changed, that needs to be conformed to what God wants it to be conformed to. So I need a beginning to understand how my heart works. The fact that my heart is, I want to say, Grand Central Station and all these trains of soul and spirit and mind and conscience and will and inner self, they, they all function and reside in this heart. That my heart is the root of any and all fruit in my life. That my heart is the, the factory of uh, idols that I worship. That the heart is is this treasure chest of things that I value the most. And so I've got to ask myself, what is there? And what am I feeding it with? The third thing then is this. Am I growing in my awareness that I must guard my heart, feed it, warn it, nurture it with the Word of God? It's interesting to me as we've looked at these growth passages We just keep on coming back to the same place again. And that is what God says is it's the word of God that is is the means by which this growth takes place. Only God is qualified to do heart surgery. Now, if you're like me, you don't like to go to the dentist. I'm not going to ask how many of you like to go to the dentist because there's obviously some person in here that does. They enjoy it. Maybe you just enjoy having needles stuck in your mouth. I don't know. But there's something about going to the dentist where you're just kind of like helpless, like, okay, yeah, do it. No one really likes it. And I think a lot of times we say we don't like heart surgery, the kind of heart surgery that God has for us. But only God can do it. That's why Hebrews 4.12 is critically important. Let's turn to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. How do I understand what's in my heart? Well, I cannot understand it except from God, but God then does something to reveal what's in my heart, and he reveals that for us in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. The idea is this, this, this sword is going right through these things to the joints and, uh, of the joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions 
of the heart. Now, is this the first time we've seen this expression, thoughts and intentions of the heart? No. How is it then that I can see my heart as it really is? It's the Word of God that exposes it. And as I humble myself to the Word of God, as I hunger for the Word of God, and God comes along and says, Rod, I need you to see the sin that is in your heart. I can respond by saying, I don't like that. Or I can respond by saying, you know what? It's painful, but it's for my good. And so I'm willing to be under the scalpel of God's Word, or I'm willing to be under, you might want to say, the, the, of, the, of the, uh, the person of God who is there working on my teeth, so to speak. He, he's at work, and it's, it may be a little painful. No one likes to have their sin exposed, right? Unless you know the one who is exposing it. And if it's God that is exposing your sin, and you know that the pursuit toward Christ-likeness is a life of having your sin revealed by the Word of God so that you can, by virtue of repentance and confession and purposeful um, uh, care and attention, you can slowly rid yourself of that sinful habit and be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If that, if that is your perspective, then you're saying, all right, Lord, show me my sin because I want to put off that sin. I want to replace it with something that is beautiful, that is right. So we can't be afraid, and we shouldn't be afraid for God to say, hey, I'm going to hit you with sin. Now, it may not always come directly. It could become you know, your own personal time of devotion. It could be something that I say because we're in a particular passage. It could be something that the Holy Spirit works on you from as we're in a particular passage, but it may not be the direct thing, but boom, he's alerting you to something in your life. You're like, oh, okay. And we can suppress it, we can fight it, or we can do something with it. Now, in summary... Let's go to Proverbs 4.23. I think Solomon here just lays it out for us very simply. Psalm, Proverbs, sorry, I should say, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's just packed, isn't it? I mean, just think of all the stuff that we looked at here. We are responsible to keep or to protect or to guard our hearts and to do it in such a way with all vigilance. What's the idea of vigilance? Anyone know? It's an alertness, a carefulness. You're looking, you're, you're aware of what's happening, and I'm protecting this heart. I'm keeping it, I'm guarding it, because I don't want anything that is going to hurt my heart to come in and find its way. So I am... My eyes are open, I'm thinking, I'm learning, because I realize that this is the battleground. It's my heart. For from it flow the springs of life. From the heart flow the springs of life. The things that you do, the things that you say, the way you behave, the feelings you experience, flow from the heart. And so I need to, to be aware that I must guard my heart, I must feed my heart with the Word of God. I must warn it with the Word of God. I must nurture it with the Word of God and to do it with diligence and vigilance because my very life depends on it. My friends, this is, this is heart theology. And on a practical level, as we are dealing with each other, as we're encouraging one another, we, we can't just be satisfied by saying, here's the fruit. We, we must say, okay, here's the fruit, but but why is that fruit there? Let's find out what is more at the core. What is in the heart? 
that maybe you have, are worshiping, that maybe you are treasuring. Find it, root it out, and in so doing, be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing, lifelong growth in Christ. But if we neglect the heart, we neglect our understanding of growth. And let me just, we mentioned it last week, but let me just pause and stop and say this. The, the, this attitude of follow your heart is so distorted, friends, because Scripture is not saying that your heart is, is so pure that it is, the, it is the place that you need to go to to find what you are to do. It just talks about the fact that God gives you a new heart, but that new heart then is tainted by ongoing sin and leaves you in a place where you're cloudy and you're deceived unless the Word of God brings that to bear. You don't want to follow your heart. You want to follow God's Word. You want to follow what the Spirit is revealing through God's Word. And that needs to be the basis of your orientation. If you say follow your heart, well, your heart can be fashioned and shaped by so many different things. So friends, let us take this truth to, to heart, okay? To recognize that God is concerned with my inner man, totally concerned with how I grow in this inner man and to recognize the various influences that are there. But what Jesus has done for me through regeneration, through new life, is to give me a heart that is reoriented to God, that is pliable, that is moldable, and I can be along this pursuit toward growth in Christ Jesus if I apply the truths and I recognize the areas where I can fall into the ditch. I can say, Lord, I want to grow. Help me to guard it, to protect it be discerning in the arena of the heart. Have your way with your word in my heart. Lord, help us today to consider, Lord, just to consider this arena. There, there's so much that we've said this morning, uh, a lot of things to be thinking about, and Lord, there, there, there may have been too much, and uh, Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would, would filter out, Lord, those things that may be unnecessary and strengthen us, Lord, with the things that just really need to take root. Um, Lord, you are concerned with doing heart surgery for our benefit, for our life, and for our abundant life with you. And Lord, even as we think about going through the Gospel of John, that we know that you revealed these things so that we can believe. We, you revealed these things, Lord, so that we can have life. But Lord, this life is an, a life of abundance. It's a life, Lord, of, of living life with you and having you actively at work in us, conforming us, Lord, to the image of your Son. So Lord, help us not to be afraid, but Lord, to come boldly to you and ask you to, to reveal um, the areas in our heart, Lord, that need to be cleansed and need to be worked on. And Lord, to trust you as you reveal that, that you will guide us and you will, you will mold us and you will shape us, Lord, to, to, to be what you want us to be before you. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we close in this song.